Amen. Well, a city slicker was on a business trip. He was driving through the countryside where he ran his car into a ditch. About that same time, a farmer and his horse trotted by. Well, the businessman asked the farmer if he could pull his car out of the ditch. The farmer said, oh, buddy, he'd be happy to help, and he hitched up his horse to the car. Well, after attaching the harness, the farmer started yelling at the horse, pull, Nellie, pull. The horse didn't flinch. Next, he screamed, pull, Daisy, pull. Not a budge. Again, the farmer barked, pull, Coco, pull. The horse just stood still. Finally, the farmer said softly, pull, buddy, pull. And immediately, old buddy pulled that car right out of the ditch. Well, of course, the stranger was astonished at the farmer's strange behavior. Three times he had called his horse by the wrong name. Finally, he asked the farmer why. The old farmer replied, well, buddy's blind and he's got a lazy streak. If he thought he was the only horse pulling, he wouldn't even have tried. (laughs) When nobody's here, you can add your own chuckles. Yet this is the approach that the author of Hebrews is taking with his readers. He's encouraging them to walk by faith, and he wants them to know they're not alone. Chapter 11 showed how all of Israel's heroes won God's approval by faith, not works. The Hebrews who had received this letter were not the first to live by faith. Chapter 12 begins, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And who are these witnesses? Obviously it's the men and women of faith spoken of in chapter 11. Now, some people interpret the cloud of witnesses to be people in heaven who are looking down on us to cheer us on, that the spirit of some dead saint might be looking over your shoulder. Not so. Citizens of heaven have far more to interest them than us. They're at the feet of Jesus right now, praising the King, beholding the glories of God. Now, the people of faith in chapter 11 who live before us are now the witnesses. Not because they're currently witnessing, it's because they've left behind a witness. The record of their lives, their memory, witnesses to us that it can be done. If they were able to hold fast to their faith in a fallen world, then you and I can too. And in light of their witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here the Christian life is referred to as a race. This is a common New Testament analogy. The Christian life is often likened to a foot race. Not a sprint, but a marathon. You know, some Christians are quick out of the blocks. They give their lives to Jesus and they're fired up to serve. But they don't make it through the first turn before they run out of steam. God isn't interested in flash in the pan, Christians. He wants us to run with endurance. And like a runner, the writer encourages us to dress for success. He says, to lay aside 
every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We need to shed two types of hindrances to be a good runner. Weights and ensnaring sins. You would never see a competitive runner in a trench coat or wearing army boots or carrying a backpack. He gets rid of every weight that might slow him down. A runner's clothes are lightweight and wind-resistant and designed to allow the greatest range of movement. In fact, the ancient Olympians competed naked. All Greek racers were streakers. They ran unencumbered. Understand, weights are issues in our life that no one would necessarily call sinful. There's nothing evil about them per se. They just make it more difficult to achieve your goal. Like unnecessary baggage, they drag us down. You know, if you travel a lot, you learn that your enjoyment of the trip is in direct proportion to how light you can pack. Try navigating an airport lugging a lot of luggage, and it's torture. This is the key to living a victorious and vital Christian life. Downsize. We need to cull away the fluff and the stuff. Ask yourself, what activities, what commitments, what pastimes suck up my energy and resources without directing me or others to Jesus? Where do I invest time without gaining a godly reward? When it comes to spiritual growth, what's slowing me down and getting in my way? Find your weights and then lay them aside. Then along with the weights, a Christian also needs to lay aside the sin that easily ensnares us. I'm sure you realize that we're not all vulnerable to the same temptations. One person battles with alcohol. Another person struggles with anger or gossip or lust. Your ensnaring sin is that which causes you the most trouble. What is it that consistently trips you up? You know, it's an important question since most of us live in denial. We don't like to face the real issue that troubles us. That's why we need to identify, then crucify. That's the formula, friends. Identify, then crucify. We need to come clean and face our sins squarely, then nail it to the cross. Jesus died to deal with our sin, and though we may need some initial help learning to trust Him, if we do, we can live in victory. See, here's how to walk by faith. You lay aside weights and ensnaring sins while you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The power we need for victory is derived from Jesus' work and example on the cross. Chapter 11 listed dozens of Hebrew elders who had impressive faith. But the greatest by far was Jesus. He endured the cross and all its pain, its nails, the rejection, the scourging, the agony, the separation. All the while, He despised the shame. The cross was meant for capital criminals, not for the sinless Son of God. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. 
See, here's what motivated Jesus. Both the joy of pleasing God and the joy of saving us. Faith enabled Jesus to keep his eyes on the joy ahead, not the pain at hand. And if you stay focused on him, if you continue in your faith, faith will do the same for you. It reminds me of a famous track meet that took place on August the 7th, 1954. At the time, the world's two best milers squared off in what was touted the Miracle Mile. John Landy and Roger Bannister were neck and neck as the racers turned down the final backstretch. Landy had a small lead, but as they rounded the turn, the crowd let out this enormous roar. Because of the noise, Landy could no longer hear Bannister's foot hitting the ground behind him. And it caused him to make a fatal mistake. Landy turned his head to look back. And as soon as he did, Roger Bannister initiated his kick, passing Landy and eventually beating him by five yards. See, in the midst of a trial, a difficulty, a persecution, the worst mistake to make is to look back to the world you've left behind you. Fix your eyes squarely on Jesus. Lock in on the joy that will ultimately be yours if you follow him. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. This is what he's telling us. Consider him. Consider Jesus. This is what we need to do. And in short, this is the theme of the book of Hebrews. We've already considered Jesus in multiple ways. His deity, his humanity. We've considered his rest and his priesthood and his sacrifice. But here we're encouraged to consider his endurance. Jesus was tortured. He was executed at the hands of a bloodthirsty mob. Yet he never gave up. He never caved in. Now what is it that we are being asked to endure? The author reminds us in verse 4, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. See, apparently the Hebrews were being asked to endure some sort of minor persecution. Maybe they were being ostracized socially, or perhaps they had been penalized financially. It wasn't to the resisting of bloodshed, and yet it was enough for them to throw a pity party. Yet here the writer reminds them that none of their members had been fed to the lions. None of them had been sawn in two. None of them had been nailed to the cross. He says, get a grip. Former believers suffered far more than you have, yet they still stood in great faith. You know, sometimes we think we're candidates for martyrdom just because we were snubbed in the break room or because we weren't invited to the office party. The persecution we suffer in America is trivial compared to what's been or what could be. Verse 5 adds, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And here he quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, 
For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. There are times when a dad has to take his son to the woodshed. Discipline is necessary. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. His kids sometimes need to be spanked. See, you don't make disciples without discipline. At times, God's discipline is corrective. Remember, God punished Jonah's bigotry by turning him into a fish sandwich. God's discipline at other times can be directive. It steers us from going down a bad path. You remember Balaam would have taken the wrong fork if an angel hadn't stopped his burrow. At other times, discipline is preventative. Paul's thorn in the flesh kept him from getting the big head. And finally, discipline can be instructive. It teaches us. Job's hardships revealed to him many godly lessons. See, here's the bottom line. When it comes to swats on the bottom, God is a good father who faithfully disciplines his kids. He corrects and directs and prevents and instructs. Verse 7 adds, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. See, when hardships come our way, we feel as if God has abandoned us, that He doesn't really love us. But the exact opposite is true. God's discipline in our lives is proof of His love. He says, furthermore, We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? You know, just before he spanked me, my dad would always say, Son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I never believed him until I became a dad. You know, a wise son accepts and trusts his father's loving discipline. A fool bucks and disrespects his dad. For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hey, ask a child three minutes after he's been spanked if he enjoyed it, and he'll say, no way. But ask him 30 years later, and he'll probably have a different perspective. And so it is with God's discipline. The hardships and the pain God allows us to taste have to be measured by their long-term effect, not by the immediate sting and discomfort. Verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. In other words, just because God knocks you down doesn't mean he's knocked you out. Take heart. God's discipline is the result of God's love. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone falls short of the grace of God 
lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. See, when discipline comes, there's one fatal reaction you should avoid. Don't get bitter. Don't grow bitter toward God or toward the instrument he uses to initiate the spanking. Notice here, bitterness is the result of falling short of God's grace. I have a friend who struggled for years with bitter feelings toward the woman who murdered her mom. I mean, who could blame her? She thought she'd made progress, though, with her bitterness until she saw a gal at work who looked like her mom's murderer. The mere sight of this woman triggered all sorts of bitter feelings. And to make matters worse, the woman's office was four doors down from hers. She saw her constantly. My friend knew she had to overcome her bitterness. One day she approached this woman and the two women introduced themselves. And when my friend heard the woman's name, she was stunned. It was grace. And that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to her. The key to overcoming bitter feelings is to recall God's grace towards you. See, folks who know grace will show grace. When we realize that all that God has chosen to forgive us, how can we then withhold love from others? From then on, whenever my friend saw grace, she was reminded of the power of God over her bitterness. Verse 16 Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Esau was a victim of bitterness who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. You remember how Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright. He exploited his brother's hunger. He traded him a bowl of stew for the family blessing. Later, Jacob even conned a confirmation out of his dad. And it all embittered Esau. You could say Esau stewed over the stew. It stifled any repentance, any progress that he could make toward God. Realize bitterness does that. It stifles. Bitterness is a blocker. It impedes God's work in your life. As long as you're obsessing over the other guy's crimes, then you'll never deal with your own. When you're resenting, you won't be repenting. We're warned, like Esau, if we succumb to bitterness, we'll be stifled in our relationship with God. Let's move past bitterness into God's blessing. And in the last half of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews sums up the theme of the entire book. Through Jesus, God has made a new covenant with his people that replaced the old covenant that he had made with Moses. A better way had been established for mankind to relate to God. There's no reason these Jewish believers should have retreated to the confines of Judaism. Jesus is better than Judaism in every respect. And to illustrate the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant over Moses and the old covenant, the writer now compares the two mountains from which the covenants were handed down. 
The old covenant came from Mount Sinai in the wilderness, whereas the new covenant came from Mount Zion or heaven itself. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. When God met the Hebrew people on Mount Sinai, the manifestations of his presence were frightful and scary and terrifying. God put his holiness on display. He made sure they realized that coming to God was an audience with a king, not a stroll in the park. Neither man nor beast was allowed to touch God's holy mountain or else they'd be struck dead. The point being that the old covenant offered limited access to God's presence and zero assurance of his acceptance. In fact, Moses was Israel's mediator, yet even he stood on the outside looking in. Even Moses trembled before God. Yet look how different the attitude is under the new covenant at Mount Zion, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This all speaks to us of openness and assurance. Rather than keep us on the outside, the new covenant registers us as citizens of heaven. We have membership now. And with membership comes privilege. In Christ, we are just men made perfect. Jesus mediates for us now. We're sprinkled in his better blood. The martyr Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance on his assailant Cain. But Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy and peace and love. And thus verse 25 tells us, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, the ground rumbled. His voice shook the mountain. No one escaped from God's voice. That was true then and even more so now. God still speaks through the new covenant, but he speaks from heaven. And today no one can escape his overtures of love. He speaks grace and acceptance toward us. But now he has promised saying, Yet once more I shall I yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now, yet, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken 
as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. You know, the old covenant began with a shaking there on Mount Sinai, whereas the new covenant will end with a universal shake-up. Under the old covenant, one mountain shook, but as the age of grace concludes, the whole universe will be knocked off its foundations. The book of Revelation forecasts cataclysmic, last day's judgments that will rock our world. Everything man-made will be destroyed. When the smoke clears, all that's left standing will be God, His truth, and the souls who have followed Jesus. This is why it's foolish to put your trust in anything labeled made on earth. Hey, put your trust in God. You know, 11 millionaires went down with the Titanic. One who survived said he left $300,000 worth of money, jewelry, and securities in his cabin. Later he said, at the time, the money seemed a mockery. I picked up three oranges instead. See, when God rocks this world, man-made values and treasures will seem like a joke. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. In other words, live for the oranges. Live for what will fuel your faith. For faith is all that will survive when the shaking stops. Well, the chapter closes by reminding us, for our God is a consuming fire. And God hasn't changed. He's still holy and fiery and unapproachable on our own. But the terms of our relationship with Him have changed. In Christ, rather than scorch us, the holy fire that is God melts us and warms us and even lights our path. In Christ, we hold on to a new covenant with God by faith. Well, in chapter 13, the doctrine is behind us. The author now tackles some practical matters facing church life. And in verse 1, he says, Let brotherly love continue. Not everything is coming to an end. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2 Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Hey, the man that helped you with that flat tire, or the woman who kept your child from running out into that busy street, or the couple who bought you a meal after you lost your job. At the time, you thought they were random strangers, but in retrospect, could they have been? Could they? They really have been an angel incognito? According to the writer of Hebrews, yes. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. First century Roman prisoners didn't have food or clothes unless it was supplied to them by friends on the outside of the jail. And here the writer of the Hebrews, he's encouraging the family of God not to forget those prisoners who had been incarcerated for their faith. There are folks in our world today who have also been jailed for their Christian faith. Hey, they need our support. Let's not forget them. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, 
and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now the word translated bed can be referred to or can be rendered sexual intimacy. He says, marriage is honorable among all and sexual intimacy undefiled. I hope you remember sex is God's idea. God created sex, and not just for procreation, but for pleasure. And to maximize and protect that pleasure, God has restricted sexual activity to heterosexual marriage, to one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. Sex prior to marriage is fornication. Sex outside of marriage is adultery. Both are deviations from God's design, and God will judge those who participate. But the marriage bed, we're told, is undefiled. It's pure. Verse 4 teaches us that sex, any sex act between a husband and a wife that's loving and that's giving and that's agreed upon is pleasing and acceptable to God. Never forget, sex is God's gift to us. You know, according to WebMD, if you want to relieve stress and lower your blood pressure and boost your immune system and burn some calories and reduce your risk of heart attack and improve your mood and relieve minor aches and pains and avoid prostate cancer and sleep better, then have lots and lots of sex. Hebrews 13 verse 4 teaches us just that. It only says get married first. And then verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Rather than harbor resentment, let's learn contentment. Everyone wants more, but the key to happiness is to need less. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here's the secret to contentment. It's realizing that Jesus is enough. There's not a need I have that Jesus can't fulfill. And he's always with me. He promises to never leave me or forsake me. Verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. You know, there are many ways that you can support your pastor, but there's nothing more important you can do for him than to pray for him. Here's the logic. Since he speaks to you on behalf of God, then you should speak to God on behalf of him. And this applies to men whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. For two chapters now, we've been looking at examples of faith, men of faith, and faith's outcome. Hopefully your pastors and elders are also examples of faith. And here it says that we should follow their faith. But be careful. Even the best pastor is fallible. We all have clay feet. That's why in verse 8, consider Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, And forever. Jesus is the ultimate example of never failing faith. You know, his ways are innovative and timely, but his truth 
and passion and motives remain timeless. Jesus' methods are adaptable, but the character of Jesus is immutable. Trust in Jesus. He's rock solid. And that's why we're told in verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Realize truth is not a moving target. Sound doctrine is the same doctrine taught by Jesus, reiterated by Paul, and recorded in Scripture. Here's a useful adage about doctrine. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. He says, For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been, preoccup- who have been occupied with them. Now, Judaism highlighted dietary or kosher laws. In other words, eat right and you'll go to heaven. Well, the truth is, eat right or you might go to heaven faster. But Jesus taught us that righteousness isn't a matter of what we put in our stomachs. It's what God puts in our hearts. These Hebrew believers had come out of this sort of bondage where everything they ate was Life or death matter between them and God. No, the writer warns them not to go back to that. Not to go back to that kind of bondage. The menu for pleasing God and going to heaven, he says, is grace. Verse 10, For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now again, these Jewish believers in Jesus, they had been banned from the temple. And they could no longer offer an animal sacrifice, and they were worried if they would be accepted by God. But the people who should have been worried were those within the temple system coming to the altar. For bulls and goats were inferior sacrifices to the sacrifice of Jesus. He says here, better to eat the bread of life at the altar of faith. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Study the Old Testament sacrifices and you discover they speak clearly of Jesus. And here's a prophetic detail that foretold the end of Judaism. That Jesus suffered outside the gate. You see, after the animals under the old covenant were sacrificed, their carcasses were taken outside the camp of Israel and burned. This meant that the ultimate end of sin would occur outside of Jerusalem, outside of Jewish boundaries. Thus, in God's amazing providence, Jesus was crucified outside of the city walls, outside north of Jerusalem, beyond the walls at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Just as the sacrifices were burned outside the the camp, Jesus was crucified outside the city walls. The writer concludes, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his approach, But here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. In essence, he's saying God is to be found outside of Judaism. 
This was revolutionary in the minds and hearts of these Hebrew believers who had received this letter. Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Thus, God can be found. Righteousness with God can be found outside the confines of Jewish religion. Jesus died outside the priestly jurisdiction of Judaism. Thus, believers in Jesus are no longer bound by Jewish laws and sacrifices and rituals. We no longer relate to God through performance-based religion. Christianity is faith-based and grace-based. And if you're to live by faith, you can't be entangled in a legalistic culture. To live by faith and grace, you have to leave the camp, he's telling them. Freedom is outside the walls. These Hebrew believers needed to abandon their old religion. And you and I need to abandon any sense of legalism or ritualism and live by faith. But some of the Jews had a sentimental attraction to the sacrifices. I mean, offering a lamb had been ingrained in them since they were kids. Well, if you need to offer a sacrifice, verse 15 tells you, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. If you need a sacrifice, here's a new covenant sacrifice appropriate to offer, the sacrifice of praise. If you want to offer a sacrifice, well, then give your thanks to God. And then he mentions two other new covenant sacrifices. He says, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Good deeds and generous giving are two other ways that new covenant believers can sacrifice to God. If you want to thank God for his grace and his many blessings, then do good and give to God financially. Well, verse 17, and obey those who rule over you. And be submissive. Now, today's church is not only in need of good leaders, we're also in need of good followers. You know, a good follower knows his pastor's human, and yet he trusts God to work through him. You know, as long as a leader is biblical in his teaching, moral in his conduct, and ethical in his handling of people and money, then a good follower sees it as his duty to support that pastor and to help adopt and uh, move forward his vision. Yet here's the problem in many churches today. Leaders can't lead because the members won't follow. You know, it's true, the person who can't lead and won't follow makes a dandy roadblock. As kids, one of our favorite games was follow the leader. But isn't it interesting how as adults we grow jaded? We get burned a time or two, and it's harder to follow the leader, isn't it? But if we're to please God, we need to ask Him to heal our cynicism. As with any army, God's army also has a chain of command. We need to submit to those who are over us. Realize it's not easy being a spiritual leader. The writer of Hebrews says, The pastor and elders watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Did you know that when Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is summoned to the judgment seat of Christ, the first person to give an account will be me? As you pass before the judgment seat, 
The Lord's going to look at me and say, well, Sandy, what about him? What about her? What did we do for them? What did we do for her? According to James chapter 3, verse 1, as your teacher, I incur a stricter judgment. And this is why I need your prayers. And there's another reason why you should follow the leader. He continues, let them do so. That is, watch out for your souls with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, you don't want to make the pastor's job more stressful than it already is. You know, it's not in anyone's best interest to have a pastor who dislikes his job. If a pastor gets too discouraged, if his heart isn't in it, he won't be a very good pastor. It reminds me of the mom who shook his son, her son one morning to wake him up to go to church. She said, come on, Johnny, it's Sunday. You've got to go to church. He rolled back over. He said, oh, Ma, do I have to go every week? The mother replied, Johnny, of course you do. You're the pastor. (laughs) I kind of like the laughter. See, no congregation wants to cultivate a sourpuss pastor. To encourage your pastor, follow verse 18. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Again, what can you do for your pastor? Pray for him. His job is to maintain his integrity. Your job is to lift him up in prayer. But I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Apparently the writer of Hebrews plans to visit this church in the near future. And thus he closes with a benediction. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Notice this. Under the old covenant, the sheep died for the shepherd. But under the new covenant, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Jesus, that great shepherd, has died in our place. And why? To make you complete in every good work, to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He works in us for us to do good works. See, this is Christianity in a nutshell. We work out what He works in. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. The theme of Hebrews has been the superiority of our Lord Jesus. He's better than anyone, anything, any other way. It's taken the author 13 chapters, but compared to what he could have written, it was just a few words. And then verse 23, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints Those from Italy greet you. Apparently he was writing from Rome, from Italy, probably to the church in Jerusalem. Verse 25, grace be with you all. Amen. And there we have the letter.